Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The prediction markets are weighing in, and uh, those of you who put money on it through those say the uh, Democratic candidate has a 73% chance of winning the election now, the Republican 27%. And that, according to some analysts, reflects the idea that Wall Street doesn't like uncertainty and doesn't particularly like Donald Trump's plans and are happy to bet on the idea of Hillary Clinton becoming president. David Rosenberg is chief economist at Gluskin Chef in Toronto. He is uh, in our New York studios. I should mention I'm in Washington today following up on the debate. Uh, Tom Keene will be in the New York studio. But David is there. And David, um, Wall Street seems to think that it's better the devil they know in Hillary Clinton than the one they don't in Donald Trump. Well, I mean, that's uh, that much is true. And, uh, you know, she's viewed as uh, having uh the steadier hand. And, um, you know, he shifted quite a bit on already on a lot of his policies. But, you know, I harken back to 1980, just to take maybe the other side of the story. And, um, you know, the comparisons with Ronald Reagan only go so far, I realize that. But it's interesting that uh, even though he was governor of California for eight years, he was viewed as a bit of an outsider. And, uh, you know, when he, when he got elected in 1980, uh, within a year, we had a recession. And uh, within a year, we had a 20% uh, bear market in equities. And what's interesting is that, you know, we look back uh, on Reagan uh, with reverence in many respects, and, and people seem to remember more uh, the 180% rally uh, from 1982 to 1988 as last six years than they remember the first 20% decline into August of 1982. So... Uh, you know, I, I wrote a report where I said, what you see isn't always what you get. And what uh, presidents say that they're going to do, they often get overtaken by events. And their presidency looks nothing like uh, the promises that were made during the election campaign. And just some to keep in the back of your mind. Well, I guess uh, as an economic historian, I'd push back and say uh, that Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump will not have Paul Volcker raising interest rates to 18 percent to start their term, which might have had something to do with the recession that followed. Uh, But uh, what is it that you think Donald Trump – I I know you've written that Trump could increase growth. What in his proposals uh, that you can figure out would increase – would be good and beneficial and increase growth? Well, uh, look, I, I'm not on, uh, you know, the, the show today to be a uh, defender of Donald Trump. Oh, come and, on, David. <laughs> and in, in fact, I, in fact I, I, I'm, I'm not even going to vote. How about that? Being a Canadian, You're I can't. Canadian. You get well, an excuse. If, look, if I, had to, um, if, if, I, if I had to, say, um, defend his policies or, or, or talk about what some of the pro-growth elements are, uh, I would point to um, the fact that we will have a more deregulated economy. That much is true. And uh, at the same time, uh, we would have uh, a, a much more vigorous uh, expansion of energy policy, drilling activity, uh, pipeline expansion. 
Um, so that much would help add to growth. Uh, and um, uh, you know, I'm not going to say he would ever get all of his uh, fiscal stimulus measures in, but um, you know his fiscal expansion is much more um, robust than than hers is. And so uh, that's why I was saying before to Tom is that uh, I think that if there's a people always look at, well, how's the market going to respond to a Trump presidency? And everybody just talks about the stock market. They don't talk about the bond market. And the fiscal implications, uh, you know, mm-hmm. for certainly from, from his policies, I think would be more detrimental to treasuries than, uh, than a Clinton victory would. Michael McKee in Washington. I'm Tom Keen uh, in uh, New York. And with us, David Rosenberg here for a bit uh, more. David, your thirst for dividends, income rising higher and higher. You buried it in your note this week, but nevertheless, it seems like you are in the markets. Is that true? Well, uh, you know, look, the, the way that we do uh, equities at Gluskin Chef is that we're not buying the indices, we're not buying the major averages. Uh, we're buying, say, 30 stocks uh, that uh, we think will preserve capital and generate uh, a, a, a decent uh, return over time. Uh, and I think that what's happening in the equity market naturally uh, is that over time uh, the dividend or the income component is gaining more and more traction. Um, so, you know, just take a look at a Microsoft last week. They boost their dividend again. They yield 2.75%, which you can't get anywhere uh, across the U.S. Treasury curve. And the Microsoft stock is up what, roughly 30% over the past year. So companies uh, that can deliver that reliable income stream to uh, mm-hmm. aging but not aged boomers are getting rewarded uh, in their stock price uh, right. from doing that. So, yeah, I think that's the you want to focus uh-huh. on blue-chip companies Dividend growth, dividend yield characteristics, uh, and I think that you'll do fine. One more question, if we could. What are your dollar dynamics here? I mean, being in Toronto, you're acutely uh, aware of that. Is it, a, is it a year forward of brutal moves in the dollar? You're, are you talking about the Canadian dollar? U.S. dollar, excuse me. I wasn't well, clear. Well, I think that, you know, once again, I think the U.S. dollar continues to be, uh, you know, the— uh, prettiest girl in the uh, in the ugly contest you know so I think the US dollar look uh, you know you mentioned Deutsche Bank before we know that uh, the European economy's got the brexit overhang that's not going to go away and the capital structures throughout the banking system and Deutsche Bank is the poster child are extremely weak uh, I have no compelling reason to be long the euro I have no compelling reason to be long sterling uh, I think that um, you know the yen continues to be a big puzzle but I would say that mm-hmm. uh, I'm bearish on the yen. And uh, I don't really have much in the way of a vigorous commodity price call right now. So even the resource-based currencies, I think, are best are going to range trade. So I think that the path of the U.S. dollar trade-weighted, right. is, uh, notwithstanding the fact that I believe that the Fed's not going to be doing anything, but most of the other central banks are still going to be easing policy, I think that it makes sense that the U.S. dollar probably yeah. uh, remains on an appreciating trend over the next 12 months. David Rosenberg, thank you so much. Bluskin Chef, greatly appreciated. is Professor of Economics and Public Policy at California Irvine. Peter Navarro has always been controversial in economics and has perhaps ramped up the controversy with his active support of Mr. Trump. He's uh, worked through a number of books over the years uh, with caution, particularly on our pivot to Asia. Uh, Peter and I have talked any number of times over the years. This is the first time, though, we speak to him with the support of Mr. Trump. Professor Navarro, good morning. What brought you around to an active support of Donald Trump? Hey, Tom, let me just say it's great to talk to you again. It's been too long. Mr. Trump has perceived correctly 
the malaise of this country. Uh, for eight years, we viewed the problem uh, as a cyclical problem that can be ad- uh, addressed by changing stimulants. And so we took over 230 years to run up $10 trillion of debt, and, and Barack Obama in eight years has doubled that. And he's doubled that because he doesn't understand uh, the problem structurally with the economy. Well, what is that? What Mr. Trump sees is that, first of all, we need more investment uh, in Michigan rather than Mexico, uh, in Ohio rather than Shanghai, uh, number one. Number two, uh, Tom, the trade deficit, the $800 billion trade deficit in goods that we run every year in this country um, is a tremendous drag uh, on our GDP. So what I, what, you know, the, the question is, what, why am I supporting Trump? It's because I want to get back to uh, the five and a half decades prior to 2002 where we grew in this country. Three and a half percent annually, real GDP. Since then, we're down at right. point nine. Well, Peter, the, the question I think everyone has this morning, whatever their support of the candidates, is what is the policy prescription of Mr. Trump? Even his most ardent supporters would suggest they didn't hear it last night. What is the, I mean, I talked to Glenn Hubbard about that, who's co-authored with you. I don't think Glenn Hubbard knows Mr. Trump's policy. You're a key advisor. What is his policy? I'd ask you to check in with Glenn uh, today, see what he says. Uh, I can tell you exactly what his policy is, and I'll send you over the uh, paper that uh, Wilbur Ross and I just released over the weekend. Basically, it's a four-pronged strategy, Tom. Uh, It deals with tax cuts. uh, It deals with a reduction in regulation. It deals with unleashing uh, the natural resources, energy resources of this country. And it speaks to eliminating the trade deficit. It's a four-pronged program. Uh, The goal is to directionally point us back in the direction of growth. It contrasts pretty well. Uh, with Hillary Clinton's plan. I, I thought it was, would be chilling for the people who listen to your show to listen to her last night. I mean, she wants to raise taxes, raise regulation. Uh, she said she wanted to put the coal mine industry out of business, and you know, she's responsible for a lot of these trade deficits. So his program is uh, the tax cuts, for example, Tom, cut the corporate tax rate. That will realign corporate incentives so it's more competitive to say in Michigan. Uh, rather than go to Mexico. That creates jobs not just at uh, Ford and GM, creates jobs in the supply chain all throughout the Midwest. Um, deregulation, Tom, it's, we have a $2 trillion annual cost on this country. That's the regulatory burden, and that comes straight out of the White House's mouth, the Office mm-hmm. of Management and Budget. If we cut that by 10% through interagency reviews, looking carefully at what's in there and what can go, uh, we will have a tremendous right. spur to growth. Uh, and if you look at, you're asking me for specifics, that energy sector. Um, why do we want to kill our fossil fuel industry in this country when we have a chance to be not just energy independent, no. but also export? Okay. Uh, and, just because of the time, Professor, let me bring in my colleague, Michael McKee in Washington. Michael? Yeah, sure. Let me do one, one fact check here. You said an $800 billion trade deficit. In the trading probably- goods. Yeah, yeah, you're not counting services. That's the same mistake that Donald Trump made. So it's really $500 billion. Um, No, because – now, think about this. This is what's important, uh, more subtly. Uh, When you're running an $800 billion uh, deficit trade in goods, those are all manufacturing, right? So that gives you a proxy for how much we sacrifice 
of manufacturing. And uh, if you take uh, the services, $1 of services versus $1 of the trade and goods, which is manufacturing, the, service, uh, the manufacturing has a much higher job multiplier, much higher revenue multiplier. So it's not a distinction without a difference. It's very important. Wow. Uh, I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but we, you're certainly leaving out the people who trade financial instruments or lawyers, uh, doctors, those sort of people who also sell services overseas. But here's the question. Is, I, how does that help uh, Ohio, Michigan, let, let Illinois? Me ask, how does that help our industrial base? Well, how does it, it help our industrial – how do you get – here's the question that was posed to Donald Trump last night that he didn't answer. How do you bring back jobs to those countries – when if a company is going to build a new factory in Ohio, they're going to put in as many robots as possible. Look, we're putting in factories in Mexico that have plenty of jobs for people, right? We can do that here. You have to ask yourself, you talked about the VAT tax last night, okay? This is a sophisticated audience. Let's talk about the VAT. We sell a car from Michigan to Mexico. They slap us with a VAT tax. If it goes the other way, Mexico to Michigan, they get a VAT tax rebate. It's basically a backdoor tariff going into Mexico and a backdoor subsidy coming out. Why does that exist? It exists because the World Trade Organization provides unequal treatment of our income tax system versus the VAT. And we've gone right. decades without addressing that. It's a, you know, it, and you know, for your audience, this cuts to the heart of the chain. Peter. What we're trying to do is realign the incentives. So companies can right. be competitive here. Peter, would, would a Trump presidency be able to work for a Washington-centric U.S. Senate to pass legislation? Yeah, you say Washington-centric. I mean, you got 50 states represented by 100 people who understand uh, across this great land um, there's an economic malaise and there's economic misery. And I think that if you had Mr. Trump in the White House, and you had a Republican Congress, you'd see tax cuts, you'd see deregulation, you'd see an unleashing of the energy sector, and you would darn well see a reduction in the trade deficit. So I think it works fine. What, what's not working, Tom, what's not working is Obama, Keynesian fiscal stimulus and having the Federal Reserve uh, print money uh, and, and, and keep bond prices down and, and have this paper bull market where the only place people can put money right now is into a stock market you, they have no confidence in. Do you, do you agree with Donald Trump's charge that Janet Yellen is manipulating interest rates to help Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton? I agree with that in, in this sense, and it's, it's, it's right in line with what he was saying. Um, you know, going back to Ben Bernanke, the Fed basically uh, has no tools to fight structural problems. So what the White House has been doing is over-relying on them uh, to keep interest rates low, and it's a losing strategy. It's just not working. Again, I say, you know, we got the Obama paper bull. Let's think about it. You watch the tape every day. That stock market goes up uh, when, when yeah. uh, basically there's confidence that interest rates <clears throat> aren't going up. What does that tell you? Bond market people are moving money into stocks. Yeah simply to park it there to try to eke out some okay. kind of return to pay for pension funds. Michael McKee in Washington. I'm Tom Keene in New York. With us now, supporting Mr. Trump and Trump economics, Peter Navarro, University of California at Irvine. Peter, how would President Trump work with the Washington-based research competency of people like the Congressional Budget Office and then bringing that over to the legislative branch. How do you envision that process would work? 
Well, that's a great question, Tom, because one of the things I think that's wrong in Washington is that uh, the CDO uh, and a lot of the think tanks there simply look um, at tax policy uh, as economic policy. So that when they score these plans, when the CDO will score a a Trump plan or a Clinton plan, uh, Trump always loses because uh, he's doing tax cuts and you're going to show deficits. But the the paper that Wilbur Ross and I did um, argued the case that you're, you're missing the whole story, which is that if you grow from, say, uh, energy reform, uh, reduced regulation, uh, balancing your trade, what you get basically is growth, additional jobs, but you also get tax revenue. So when we uh, took basically the CBO standard methodology in the baseline, uh, we see that there's a lot of positive offsets to revenue. So I think one of the things that Mr. Trump would do uh, would call uh, for CBO and some of these think tanks uh, to look more holistically, more synergistically, more integratedly at economic plans. We get see, in Washington, they, 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 you know, all they want to do is either raise taxes or cut spending to solve our budget problems. What Mr. Trump wants to do is add a point and a half of growth a year. And if you do that, you, you generate not, not just millions of jobs, but trillions in revenue. So that, that's a great question. And I think the beltway is broken in a lot of ways, and particularly the way they view uh, budget balance. Uh, dynamic scoring, in other words. No, I'm not talking about, no, 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 please don't go there. Dynamic scoring, again, is this trap, this old debate within the context solely of tax plans, okay? I mean, of course you should do dynamic scoring. That's a no-brainer these days. I mean, if you're going to cut taxes, there's going to be ripples through the economy, but you're always going to have, even in a dynamic scoring fashion, you're going to have revenue reductions. What I'm saying is, that in addition, and we have numbers on this I can share with you on it, if you also take into account uh, the rest of the economic plan and look at it holistically, what you get, for example, uh, when you reduce the trade deficit, is you get more investment here and you get more GDP growth. If you just simply think about regulation, if you got a $2 trillion uh, bill every year on this economy and you reduce it, uh, 10%, you got a $200 billion stimulus that ripples through. Those Here's, are the kinds of things that have to be accounted for in looking at the fiscal responsible uh, plans, and that's what they're not doing. And it goes, well, here's well, a, it's got nothing to do with dynamic scoring. This is, this is a whole new uh, discussion that we should have about how do you look at growth and its role okay. in balancing the budget. Peter, let me ask you this. Here's a question that a lot of economists have. Uh, Donald Trump has not specified the regulations he wants to cut, and he hasn't specified how he would get other countries to suddenly change their trade deals with the United States. And so uh, there are people who say, isn't this the return of the rosy scenario under Ronald Reagan? We just assume these things will happen. Wait, let me stop you there, because you've made two assumptions that that I think are, are factually wrong, Okay. Let's start with uh, regulation. Um, what, what the media loves to do is like, hey, what are you going to cut? What's the big target? That's not how this works. You know, Donald Trump's a business person, right? Donald Trump is on day one, first of all, going to put a moratorium on all new regulations that have, don't affect public health and safety and aren't mandated by Congress. Why is that important? It's because Barack Obama last year introduced 3,400 new regulations. 
Uh, and this, this, they go up every year. That's number one. But more importantly, um, what he has said he would do is uh, do an, an interagency review. Every agency head in mm-hmm. Washington is going to review regulations within their agencies and figure out what to cut. That's how well, business people do it. You don't kind of say, I'm going to cut this to begin with. You do it in a measured way like a business person. Well, Peter, we're going to have to leave it there. Peter DeMarro, UCAL Irvine, thank you so much in support of Trump uh, economics. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Mike, Laura Tyson's West Coast, booming. Portland, year over year, up 12%. Seattle, up 11%. San Francisco, a little flat, up 6%. New York, nowhere, up 2%. Boston, uh, my eyes are failing me, up 4%. Washington, nowhere, up 2%. It's a Laura Tyson world, Michael. Well, Laura, Laura was smart enough. She uh, came to Washington to be uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Bill Clinton and got the heck out. She, she bought like west. six properties have, out west. Have you sold a house? I mean, you're at you're in Berkeley now at the University of California. Yes, I, I have to say I have been in the same house with my husband all of this time. We bought the house in the late, uh, around 1980. And even wow. during our time in Washington and our time in London, we kept the house. That's uh, like so. So you're that's like a lottery ticket. That's great. She's supporting <laughs> Donald Trump because Michael shall have no estate tax. <laughs> uh, I am indeed, of course, not supporting Donald Trump. <laughs> we should make that clear. Uh, Laura yeah. Tyson is not a Trump supporter. No. Uh, one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on, though, is because you did serve in the uh, first Clinton administration. Yes, I did. And uh, the, the Bill Clinton administration. You know, we're going to have a problem because this is going to be if she wins, just like which George Bush are you talking about? Which we President to- Clinton are you talking? about um nafta was uh if the negotiations began under the first president bush uh, bill clinton brought it to a conclusion signed it it went into effect there's a lot of debate about obviously uh, what it did donald Trump called it last night the worst <clears throat> trade deal of all time, all time uh, right? i, I want to let you respond to that but if you can do so by giving us some reasons some, some actual <laughs> facts that we can judge this on Right. Well, first of all, actually, I think it is good to put it in historical perspective. We did actually, uh, because uh, it's to point out that a number of all of the trade deals since that deal started with adding uh, labor issues and environmental issues to trade packs, something that had never happened before. So uh, the first Clinton administration inherited uh, a NAFTA uh, treaty, which had no environmental and labor protections. And if you look at all of the trade agreements up to now, including TPP, which doesn't meet the standards uh, that of protection and uh, labor issues that uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, Secretary Clinton wants, all of those agreements have, have, have had that. We've put that into the international trade agenda. That's important. A second thing is, as it's been pointed out, uh, the real failure here was a failure to enforce our rights under NAFTA 
under the WTO, a, a, a massive failure to do that during uh, the Bush administration, the second Bush administration, <laughs> to, go, to go to your point. Um, so we have well, the possibility to use our trade agreements and our pressure by our own law and by international law to enforce our rights. We didn't do that. That's why uh, Secretary Clinton has called both for uh, re-looking at and adjusting uh, trade agreements that we have, but also also having a chief trade prosecutor to really go after our rights and enforce yeah. actions against unfair trading practices what, what by the laws of, we've signed. What do you make of the argument that Donald Trump's been making lately and that Peter Navarro made earlier on the program that one of the great disadvantages of the NAFTA treaty is the disparate treatment of VAT-imposing countries and income-taxing countries? I think that one this is a general issue of US tax policy and it's in it's the fact that it is different from all of the countries that we trade with all around the world who use VAT as a tax mechanism. And it has been pointed out in general, this is not just true about trade agreements and non-trade agreements, that in international uh, and in cross-border trade, uh, what countries can do with that at the border is different than what countries who use income taxes can do at the border. So I think that's a general point uh, about really U.S. taxation mm -hmm. and that taxation. I did last night the most interesting moment in the debate in in terms of, are you kidding me, wasn't anything Secretary Clinton said, and it wasn't anything Mr. Trump said. It was before the debate. I heard it on MSNBC, and he repeated it again on CNN. The a governor of Indiana, Mr. Michael Pence, um, said something about Donald Trump being broad-shouldered. Laura Tyson developed her broad shoulders at Smith College, and she joins us right now. Professor Tyson, you were in the trenches of good academics a few years ago. You did everything it took to get to Princeton and to move on into public service. What in God's name does broad-shouldered mean? <laughs> I, I'm afraid I've never heard that either Thank as a you. personal term or a technical term. I put out a photo you, you of Arnold Schwarzenegger. from Chicago, obviously. I, I, I put out a photo of Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is a, a certified broad-shouldered Republican. Would you explain to me, Professor Tyson, away from politics, away from your support of Mr. Clinton and Mrs. Clinton, what is it about this country and women as president. Pence, I don't care what anybody says. He's talking about we need a John Tucker, you look very broad shouldered today. Why, thank you, Tom. <laughs> it's my duty. Laura, jacket. what the heck is going on in this country? Well, I think that, uh, you know, there is a, a lot of evidence uh, from around the world, and uh, it's a really very rigorous evidence that, that does suggest that many people, both men and women, have, uh, when they see a competent w woman, a woman that's competent, they don't think of her as that likable. There are stereotypes. There are implicit biases that we all walk around with. And that's why, actually, implicit bias was mentioned last night in the debate, and a number of people tweeted, including myself, everyone should go take the implicit bias test yeah. that is available free and, on, online, and, because you will find out you have biases. You think that broad shoulders and power 
her and decisiveness may go together. That may be a biased yeah. viewer. She may and, as well learn it. And we're Baron Fallon's here as well. Michael, I want to mention that Olympia Snow of Maine or Margaret Chase Smith, they had the same broad-shouldered problem. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to say also what I thought was really an interesting and a very important line last night was this notion of can you, you know, when when she he said that she was prepared for the debate, and she said, of course I was prepared for the debate, and I'm prepared to be president. You know, this notion of being over-prepared, I actually saw people, well, she over-prepared. She knows too much. She This, this, this is a, also something women tend to be well-prepared when they go into many, into most settings. This is also quite obvious in the literature on this. Perhaps they go in because, in general, women are less confident. That is certainly not true in this case. I mean, and, and it should not be true. But you're going in. You want to make sure you are prepared. She was super prepared. She has facts. She has logic. She has a plan. She's articulate. She was prepared, and she is prepared to be president. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, she may be that way and. In- in- We'll see how she does in the next debates. Uh, I mean, there was quite a contrast between somebody who had prepared not at all and somebody who <laughs> yeah, the tactor for being prepared. I mean, but, that's what's what amazing about it. Is, can, yeah. I, can I ask you though a fundamental question? And that is, uh, Donald Trump has suggested his economic plan will increase growth three and a half to, to three and a half to four percent yeah. annually. Uh, and while economists generally seem to think that's not going to happen. Uh, the Clinton plan doesn't envision a huge increase in growth and doesn't really suggest, uh, you know, it suggests ways to invest in the future, but not to to boost immediate growth. Uh, why is that? I mean, why settle for 2%? Is that just on a productivity and labor force growth rate the best we can do right now? Well, I think I think that the investment strategy that uh, Secretary Clinton has laid out, the goal of that is indeed to boost productivity growth. I mean, we we do have, as as you said, the logic of growth over time is basically labor force growth and productivity growth. We have a labor force which uh, the growth rate of which, even as we get labor force participation rates back up, the growth of our labor force is slower. That's a demographic issue. Now, one of the things that's really interesting here is that uh, I believe it's uh, the Moody's analysis of uh, Secretary Clinton's plan gives uh, a boost to labor force growth through paid family leave and child care, because one of the things we know around the world is that women's labor force participation rates vary depending upon paid family leave and child care, and we're the only developed country without either of those things. So we can actually boost a bit our labor force growth rate through labor force participation, but the demographics still say this is an aging, slower-growing population. So it's all about productivity. So the question is then what do you do to boost productivity growth? What you do is you focus on investment. You have to focus on investment. So that is the infrastructure investment with spillover effects to private investment. That is the investment in education, which spillover effects directly into a higher quality, more productive workforce. And that is, of course, way we have to continue with uh, – 
Secretary Clinton mentioned last night, the fact that we're 5% of the world's population, 95% of the world's population, the big markets are outside the United States. We have got to find a way to continue to engage the international community through trade and immigration. That will give us a boost on labor force growth and productivity. We're we're out of time. Thank you so much. I got to go. Laura, I got to go now. I got to go to the surveillance gym and work on my shoulders. Professor Tyson uh, with us, uh, her support of Secretary uh, Clinton. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.